1: Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Hi there,
2: I'm Ed Campbell, and this is another round of the Politics Show podcast. In 1991, a sociologist named James Davison Hunter wrote a book exploring the moral fights that were happening in the American public sphere. Fights between conservative Christians and progressives over abortion, gay rights, prayer in school, and the impact they were having on late 20th century America. The book was called Culture Wars – The Struggle to Define America. James hoped that by drawing attention to the culture wars, people on both sides would put down their arms and maybe even come together for, if not a truce, Whatever the culture war equivalent of the World War I Christmas Day football matches. Thirty years later, the battles rage on. But they've evolved. There's new weapons, and the combatants seem even more bloodthirsty. There's new fronts like Covid and battlegrounds like Twitter. Grizzled culture war correspondent John Ronson returned to the front line. I think this metaphor might have run on slightly too long, but I'll see. In the new series of his podcast, Things Fell Apart where he explores the culture wars that all kicked off about six weeks into lockdown. We discussed why lockdown was the impetus for so many new culture wars, avoiding getting sucked in himself, and why the rights are moving away from using culture war tactics. I found this conversation fascinating, and I hope you do too. Am I tough enough? Strong and stable leadership. Total rhubarb. Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Shut the fridge. Not another one! It's the Politics Show podcast. John Ronson, hello, welcome to Politics Show. Very nice to see you. How are you doing, Ed? I'm doing really well. Um, you're in New York, is it?
3: Upstate New York, I'm two hours north of the city, where there's all these like strange animals. That, that, that this morning, I saw a groundhog.
2: Oh wow! Yeah, I, I couldn't pick one out of a crowd. What's I know <laughs>
3: they're like giant, They're like great big beans covered in fur.
2: <laughs> I'll look out for them on my next visit to uh, to rural New York. Um, mm. We're here to talk about the latest season of your podcast, Things Fell Apart, available now on BBC Sounds. Uh, you look at the pretty extraordinary origins of the culture wars. Last series, you looked to kind of the the original culture wars almost. And in this series, you look specifically at the culture wars that were a result of the pandemic, of lockdown, of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, what- Actually, even more niche
3: than that, what, what I realised halfway through making the second series was the every culture war we were looking at, and pretty much every cultural war that continues to consume us, <clears throat> all blew up within a few days of each other, within like maybe twenty days of each other in May twenty twenty. After six weeks of lockdown compliance, we all lost our minds and everything exploded. And and it's and it was those days that, that I'm that I'm holding in on. So yeah, the first season takes place over decades. And the second season takes place over days
2: it's pretty extraordinary was it just was there just so much pressure on our psyche that people just went ballistic was that do you think, do you think that there's a direct cause and effect or uh, I yeah, I'd
3: say I mean yes I'd, I'd say so um because every story that we do this season is is lockdown related well at one moment in 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 each episode lockdown happens and yeah I, I think something happened I mean I, I don't know about you I mean I, I thought I was fine like <laughs> um, in fact I was quite enjoying it it was such a novelty not being able to work and you know being forced to chill you know I thought this is but then you know after six weeks I was muttering to myself as I was like <laughs> you know running down the street and like letting out weird noises and things were starting to change our brains were starting to, to rewire uh, and I think it's kind of under chronicles. I mean, obviously, you know, people, I, I was slightly worried that, oh God, are people sick of thinking about lockdown and COVID and so on? And, you know, I'm sick of that too. But I don't think <clears throat> it's really been properly looked at in the sort of psychological sense, like what it did to people's brains. Um, but because I'm not a psychologist, I, I, I'm a storyteller. I thought, well, why don't I, you know, try and filter that through just amazing stories?
2: The most extraordinary story, to my mind, and perhaps yours, which is why it's in the first episode, is the story you tell between the links between the deaths of black prostitutes in 1980s Miami, a debunked, extremely racist medical theory, and the eventual murder of, of George Floyd. Could you talk about that a little bit? I think that, that is maybe the best encapsulation of what you're trying sure. to do. Sure.
3: So well, one of my favourite things about things, Philippa, is is going back to the, the the pebbles thrown in the pond, creating the ripples. And really, I've become very interested in that ripple effect stories because I think it reminds us how connected we all are, like how our actions have consequences. On social media, we want to just tear people apart and just not think about it, just move on with our day. And we, we want to think that what we do doesn't really have consequences because we want to hurt people and not feel bad about it. So I became really interested in telling Sort of ripple effect stories and origin stories. It's sort of, you know, when you go to a party and the party's going really badly and everybody's screaming at each other, you you know, it's bewildering. But if you go back to the very, very beginning to see how it all started, then maybe that, that offers some clarity. So that's what I'm trying to do more than anything, I think, and things fell apart. And and yes, there there in in the early 80s in Miami, there was a spate of mysterious deaths, 32 women were all found dead in um very mysterious circumstances the police at the time said it was the most mysterious case they'd ever come across because while the women were all found in exactly the same way they were naked from the waist down in junkyards and alleyways um their legs apart you could superimpose their bodies over each other Nobody could figure out the cause of death. There was no gunshot wounds, no stab stabbing, no blood, nothing. Um, so it mystified. And and um, the other thing that the women all had in common is that they were all black sex workers, hence there being surprisingly little press about the case. And um, they, they were all found with low levels of cocaine in their systems. So you would think already that this story would everybody would know the story because it's so mysterious and, and intriguing already. But, but this is a story that like, nobody knows, um, or very few people. So anyway, the deputy chief medical examiner, Dr. Charles Wetley, announced that he had determined the cause of death. The women, he said, had all died as a result of a combination of cocaine and sex. They'd taken cocaine, had sex and spontaneously dropped dead, and he gave he gave it a name, um, and the name was excited delirium, and I then trace what happened to this diagnosis of excited delirium over the decades, um, ending up yeah with a with a murder,
2: uh, a sort of world changing murder that took place during lockdown. It's pretty extraordinary because it just sounds it just sounds like nonsense, and you had. Is, 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 is It's like people take cocaine and have sex all the time.
3: Yes. And, and exactly. Like the first time I told a friend of mine that story, uh, she said, well, how come I'm not dead? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yes, I know. Extraordinary. Doctors. We just, we believe them. Uh, it's You know, years ago, after I, after I wrote the psychopath test, but before I wrote, so you've been publicly shamed, uh, Clive Stafford Smith, the human rights lawyer took me out for a bunch of lunches because he wanted me to write a book about, not excited delirium, but but this in general, like pseudoscience inside courtrooms. Because excited delirium is now used as a defence um, for when when somebody dies in police custody after being tased. They say, oh, it, it, it was nothing to do with police brutality. They spontaneously dropped out of excited delirium. So it's used in courtrooms as a defence. Um, and yeah, Clive was saying to me, you've got to do, you know, Clive was saying, it's, it's all nonsense. Clive's a bit of a polemicist, uh, but he was like, saying, it's all nonsense. Blood spatter, hair analysis, it's all nonsense. Uh, this is your next book. This is your next book. Uh, <laughs> so um, anyway, it wasn't my next book, mainly because it mutated into So You've Been Publicly Shamed, which is also a book about pseudoscience in the justice system, but it's it's citizen justice on social media I focused it on instead. But yeah, when I did the excited delirium story, it reminded me a lot of live entreaties.
2: You mentioned pseudoscience there, and you you tell the story of Judy Mikovits, the who's become a very prominent um, anti-COVID denying doc, doctor scientist since since the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And it, what really struck me in your telling of that is how actors can hijack almost these culture wars for their own gains, like COVID deniers, etc., would maybe see Judy as a fellow traveller. But as you show, is it her trying to get revenge on a community that rejected her?
3: For me, the Judy Mikevitt story is is exactly the reason why I wanted to make yeah. uh, things fell apart to begin with, because I would see friends kind of going the way of Judy Mikovits, uh successful, smart you know, pretty eminent people getting too involved with social media and culture wars and kind of, you know, losing losing their grip on life. And, and um, uh, you know, I've had friends who've lost themselves so much to the culture wars that they've, you know, their wives have left them, they can't get work. Uh, and people, and I think everybody knows at this stage somebody who that's happened to I and mean, I was for years now, for like four or five years, I've been fascinated and tried to figure out why you know what are the mechanics of that. How come between this tweet and that tweet two weeks later, somebody's completely changed? <laughs> and, and they've fallen down a rabbit hole and they've become a kind of extreme caricature of themselves and they can't escape it so that was the reason why I wanted to make the show to begin with and yeah Judy Mikevitz's story is feels like a story like that mm-hmm. um, and it reminds me a little bit of Naomi Klein's doppelganger as well I don't know if you've, if you've read yes. that but yeah you know she she kind of grapples with this as well she comes to slightly different conclusions than me as to like what's happening why are people tumbling in this way she says addiction has a lot to do with it. I'm 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 sure that's true. I think narcissism has a lot to do with it. Um, the whole thing about social media, this is moving slightly away from Judy Maikovitz here, but, but the whole thing about social media is that, you know, it it wounds people. You know, we, we just get into each other's bubbles and wound them. And if you're a narcissist, being wounded, it is something that's very difficult to get over. Uh, So you just lash out and lash out and lash out. And I think that's got a lot to do with it.
2: Um, Have have you found yourself inadvertently participating in the culture war?
3: These days on social media, I don't do anything except for promote my work or or other people's work that I like. Uh, I don't offer any opinions anymore Um, for lots of reasons, Uh, partly because it seems completely pointless. You know, at the very beginning of... um, I hope I'm not being too indiscreet here, but, like, at the very beginning of Twitter, I had lunch with Matt Stone, one of the South Park people, Mm. and he said something I think very prescient and true and something we should have all listened to. Uh, He said, Lena Dunham, he said she has, like, the best show, you know, this amazing show at HBO where she gets to, um, uh, you know, be, be smart and creative and um you know put all of her inner thoughts out in a really interesting dramatic way and then she goes and like fucks it all up on Twitter by just blurring out nonsense and and I think if you're lucky enough to you know have a platform where you can talk in a sort of measured way why why ruin it on Twitter? Um I almost nobody is good on Twitter. Like almost <laughs> no one. <laughs> a few people are. I think. I think Molly Jongfast is is good. Like she's good at that sort of pithy, you know. Because what's what's Twitter all about? It's all about you know making the biggest point in the smallest number of words, and that's a that's a niche skill. And um, so I think just leave it alone if 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 it's not your. If it's not your way of communicating, if you can communicate better in other ways, just don't do it. Just don't do it. Because all you're going to do is like, you know, make everybody think you're not as good as they thought you were, (laughs) which I think all the time on Twitter. I think, oh God, I really like that author and (laughs) I don't like him quite as much. Uh, I suppose,
2: (laughs) imagine with all the nuance of the two seasons of Things Fell Apart, if you'd condensed that to 280 characters.
3: I yeah, you, and I have done look, and this is coming from bitter experience. Like I've <laughs> I've tweeted stupid things that I regret. Um and the one culture I suppose I did inadvertently get into, but I didn't think I was, was actually it was with Graham Linehan. I, I, I um he was I, I was asleep. Uh, I was brought into a culture war while I slept. Uh, I was asleep and somebody tweeted to Graham Linehan, why is John Ronson still following you? Which, by the way, is a kind of irritating... I got that the other day. Why are you following this problematic person? It's like, you know, I'm like, you know, excuse my language, but like, you know, fuck off, follow Nazi. You know, people follow people for all sorts of reasons. Like um, We, you know, I, I mean, especially people, you know, like me and Louis Theroux, you know, we we... We go over to the other side, you know, uh. with people who don't, you know, necessarily agree with the way we. Anyway, um, but while I slept, um, Graham replied because he thinks you're all, i.e., I, <clears throat> pro trans people, he thinks you're all assholes. So I woke up and saw that and flinched in it. I was at the uh, Hotel Duvan in Edinburgh. It's like ingrained in my mind and um, and i saw that and in a flash of anger i tweeted you know i don't think your critics are assholes and i think you've been acting like a bully Uh, and i said that because he was really going after a friend of mine who got very upset anyway that was like five six seven years ago now and you know his rage towards me continues to this day thousands of tweets about me like thousands um and so that was a mistake, like I wish I done. I did say to him afterwards, like, I, I regretted saying that publicly to you. I really wish I'd said it in a DM. And he replied, well, I'd have been just as upset if you'd said it in a DM. So <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of comforting that
0: um, he would have gone after me anyway. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music. For all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home
1: was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier.
2: You mentioned Louis through there And you're probably sick to death of the comparisons But I'm going to do one anyway Oh, You're both remarkably Compassionate with people that you interview Regardless of what they're saying Their background, what they've actually done And the kind of their impact on the world Why do you think that compassion Is so important?
3: Um, it's just I don't know, I, I feel You know, when I'm interviewing Somebody, by the time I by the time I interview them, I've learned so much about them. I've done so much research. Uh, I'm fortunately in a position where I only can, you know, I I only do stories that I want to do now that I, uh, I'm just curious and inquisitive and, and it sort of, maybe it sort of comes over as compassion, but really it's more like curiosity. And, and it's not a, I really, I've always kind of hated hierarchies. And including hierarchical journalism, going into somewhere as like the representative of righteous society. Uh, I've always thought that was like posturing and self-involved. And so when I go, I want to meet people and just try and understand them on a on a level playing field. Now, you know, there's obviously a downside to that, which is you can give bad people who do bad things an easy ride. And so when you're back at home working on the story. I, I think it's important to, you know, keep your morality intact and not let people get away with, with behavior that hurts other people. But for me, to be honest, that's more a job for when I'm back at home working on the story than when I'm out there
2: gathering the material. It seems very important that you you if someone says, Ask this person, they'll tell you I'm a good guy, you literally do it. There's a, <laughs> you, you do that with the um the, oh, the, the, uh, militia, yeah. the militia, the man from the Michigan Wolverines. Yeah. <laughs> it was an extraordinary name. I thought it was brilliant. He says, "My black fellow inmate from this prison says I'm not. We'll say I'm not a racist." And so you have a, phone, a phone, like a serial esque phone yeah. conversation with um, DD. I think his name was uh, Day Day. Day Day. Excuse me.
3: Yes, that felt well. That felt especially important to me because you know there's a sort of central mystery to that episode. Which is, you know, it's about the men who were arrested for plotting to kidnap the governor of Michigan. And as I say in that, you know, and everybody just assumes they're white supremacists. Um, Nobody's just, it's just like shorthand, the white supremacists who. And what I began to realize as I was like researching that story is that there's many things you can find distasteful about these men, and there's lots and lots of things you can disagree with. And there's quite a lot of these men, and some of them may well have been white supremacists, but the ones I was focusing in on, there's no evidence that they're white supremacists, and in fact, kind of quite the opposite. You know, they, and, and that speaks to um, something that somebody says in another episode of the series, which is America, and I think the same to a large extent could be true about Britain, uh, is a class-based society that pretends that it's an identity-based society. And I think that's a very interesting perspective. And I don't know why it's unpopular to say that, like, why is it? Why do people not like it when you say that? Um, Because the fact is, you know, this guy I'm focusing on in the episode about the kidnap plot, um, he's a working class guy. Sure, he was in a militia where everybody was white. But he, as he says to me, that's just like that's just like the style of it. <laughs> <laughs> and, there's, and I found no evidence that the guys are white supremacists. So, so then it becomes a story about well, why, why what's, what are the what systems are in place to just kind of determine that these people are white supremacists, you know, even if they aren't. So that's what the show becomes about.
2: I think that speaks to. Point maybe an observation about the left in that I think the left are very quick to blame the right for the culture wars and don't, aren't are quite rubbish at recognizing their own complicity. As mm-hmm. in, there wasn't like there was people on the left look to the M- Michigan Wolverines and just well they are a white militia, yeah. so they must also therefore be um, white supremacists. I think there's a lack of do you think there's a lack of nuance or lack of perspective on maybe both sides, and it's easy to blame. One over the. It's easier to blame than to admit complicity, isn't it?
3: Yes, I, I, absolutely. Um, and actually, one of the things I think the series, that the second series does, is look at the kind of different ways that the left and and right, um, in, in terms of untruths. Uh, another sort of talk before about how one thing that unites all of these stories that they all blew up within days of each other. Another thing that unites the stories is that they're all about untruths and their consequences. And the untruths that come from the right seem to be, you know, these big Baroque conspiratorial lies. Like as we're speaking today, it's the day after the Jeffrey Epstein um, papers have been released and Twitter. uh, I just can't bring myself to say X.
2: (laughs) No, I think it's very sensible.
3: Yeah, in the same way that I don't want to go into a Starbucks and ask for a venti. (laughs) Just, you know, just because you come up with a word doesn't mean I'm forced to use it. (laughs) And uh, Yeah, so Twitter's full of, you know, fake stuff, you know, Jimmy Kimmel, you know, and it's all fake. So that's the right. It's just these big, baroque, balls-out lies (laughs) <laughs> On the left, it's, you know, it's more subtle sometimes. It's sort of ideological untruths where, where um, you know, one of the things I look at in the series, and I've just noticed it happening more and more, is, you know, young journalists are coming in uh, and they've been trained to be more activist than than evidence-based. Mm-hmm. And obviously often activist journalism has been great uh, and is important and is a kind of vital part of the tapestry of journalism. And I can come up with a million, you know, excellent things that activist journalism has done. But if it becomes, you know, too much of the sort of default, it it has negative consequences. And, And one of them is that, you know, if you're desperate to tell a story where, you know, a particular type of person is the hero, then you start to filter out, it's like confirmation bias, you filter out the stuff, that the your story. Uh, so there's a sort of magical thinking element to left wing ideological journalism, which in its way is, you know, is, is just as problematic as the, as the great big lies of the right.
2: If politicians start to engage in the culture war, if they start engaging with these theories, they are starting to engage with some quite like grubby characters and some kind of spheres of of the internet of the world more widely. Why? But why do you think they're still? Why is there? Why are politicians essentially buying into these culture wars and taking them into the mainstream? Do you think?
3: I mean, it's interesting to see, certainly in America, whether that's going to work. Uh, mm-hmm. It's an argument that is kind of not working. I mean, look at Ron. De, you know, Ron DeSantis is the culture war candidate in mm-hmm. America. He's completely defined himself by, you know, Florida is where woke goes to die. And it's really not working. The more conciliatory Nikki Haley is doing a hell of a lot better than Ron DeSantis right now. So it's it might backfire, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, even Trump, it seems less unscathed. Speaking slightly out of my sphere of knowledge here, so I hope I'm not saying anything stupid. But for what I understand, from what I can tell, you know, even Trump is less culture worry than Ron DeSantis. Uh so, so I'm not sure it works. It works in 2016 in America. Trump going on the Alex Jones show seemed to me, you know, somebody who's been like, you know, following Alex Jones for decades, seemed to me like a terrible miscalculation. Like Sure, there's a whole bunch of people who watch Alex Jones who uh, don't vote, and now they're going to vote for Trump. But surely, I thought, there's way more Republicans who are going to be so horrified that Trump goes on the Alex Jones show that it's going to, like, you know, balance out and it's going to do worse for him in, in the long run. And I was, like, completely wrong. Uh, so, um, so back in 2016, it did work. I can't kind up of thinking in 2024 there's less chance it's going to work. I think people are sick of it and are starting to feel manipulated. Because mm. culture war so often, it's like, you know, what Mark said about religion. It's like the opium of the masses. Yeah. You know, we all scream at each other about trans rights while the rich get richer.
2: I think that was like closer to home at the Tory party conference, Sunak in his speech, obviously was pretty garbled, nothing clear cut, etc. He's still doing a terrible job. That's my object, objective opinion. Um, but he made made it clear, he said, well, Starmer doesn't even know what a woman is. And I think people can see past that now. As in, well, the cost of living still, I, I don't care what about yeah. I actually don't care about that because the cost of living has gone through the roof. I think it's almost like, I wonder if it's too well-worn, those tropes now.
3: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think a few years ago when it was kind of felt pretty new to people, these these arguments, People felt very animated and, you know, I had friends. I had a sort of old friend of mine who used to rent a room off me when I lived in Manchester uh, because she saw Graham tweeting at me. Um, And she sort of sent me a stern message saying, you know, this is why, you know, we lesbians feel this way. And, yeah, and I, I couldn't help thinking part of her concerns, you know, she'd been, she'd been scared. I mean, people were scaring themselves and scaring each other. Um, And I agree with you. I think people are beginning to put it slightly more into perspective. I, I think, you know, some of the fears maybe they felt were disproportionate and people are, and yes, it's become, it's less of a firestorm than it was a few years ago. And, and yes, I, I, it's kind of ridiculous to fight an election on something like that. It's when, as you say, look at inflation, look at, look at mortgage rates, look at the cost of living.
2: I think people like to think that the UK is kind of, you look at, from a British perspective, when I was listening to the series, I was like, well, thank goodness we don't really have that here. But then I thought about it and thought about literature. So I, I do quite a lot of Vox Vox for Politics, Joe, and I meet people in the street. And I had a conversation with a man who talked about you talking about military age men coming to the UK and was using the Battle of Hastings as the, as a comparison. So there, yeah. these people these people do still exist. And do you think it? I wonder. From I suppose as an American, you're you're based in America now. Looking back at the UK. Do you think that there, it has taken hold in some sort of way?
3: I mean, in a sense, that's hard for me to judge because, I'm because you know, I'm living in America, so I'm not experiencing Britain in the way that, you know, most, most of the listeners will be. Um, but all I can say is, yes, I don't see any really big difference <laughs> between anything that's happening in America and anything that's happening in Britain. It feels to me, from a, you know, slightly ignorant perspective, pretty much the same thing. Uh, Americans are better at expressing them in their lives. And most of my stories, <laughs> I think, are American stories for that reason. Americans are better at, you know, verbalising, it you all know, than Brits are often. Um, but I think the, you know, the strains on society <clears throat> and the way that it's top-down, you know, these, you know, just like forever, it's the rich who are, you know, it's bread and circuses down here and it's the rich getting richer up there. That seems to be, you know, True in both countries.
2: Mm. Um, my final question for you, John. The sociologist James Davison Hunter made the observation that liberal democracy came out of the Enlightenment. What do you think is going to come out of the culture war?
3: Mm. Well, hopefully it's going to burn itself out and the Enlightenment will win win over, is is my very strong hope. But I've got to say, it's things are a little worrying. You know, go on Twitter today, the day after the Jeffrey Epstein papers, and well, I mean, I went on for five minutes and I thought there's no way I'm going to be able to figure out what's true and what's not true. So I'm going to get my news from. I went onto the Guardian, I went onto like an old legacy site to because I trusted it more.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
3: you know, because the first thing I saw was a Jimmy Kimmel, was a section from the papers about how Jimmy Kimmel was accepting massages. And it wasn't true. It's just, it's not true. So, um, so we're in this very strange you know with ai and with disinformation and so on we are in this really strange moment where we're you know we're all having to learn how to use our brains in a different way because we're being bombarded with so much untruth that um that it's really hard to tell that it isn't true you know the 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 lies and the ai look pretty real so everybody's having to like really, you know, relearn how to learn about truth now. So that's a kind of interesting and slightly scary, you know, so we're going to be relying, I think, a lot more on fact-checking sites like Snopes and so on, and just on other people saying, no, that's bullshit, like that isn't true, and here's the evidence. Elon Musk says that this is how things should be, like just throw everything in there and, and the people will figure it out. But, you know, it's like, thanks car manufacturer for, <laughs> for you know, telling us how nonfiction should be. <laughs> so, you know, but, but in a sense, you know, because that is the world that he's created on social media, we are going to have to deal with it that way. But I think there's probably going to be a, even more of an exodus. Because if it's just impossible to figure out what's true and what's not true on Twitter, then people will just throw their hands up and leave and and return maybe, to the old legacy institutions like, like the BBC and The Guardian and I, I know that some people are going to say, well, you know, they're, and true, you know, everyone's got problems, every institution's got problems, but the editorial standards at those places are a hell of a lot higher than they are on, on social media nowadays.
2: John Ronson, your new series of Things the Apart is out on BBC Sounds now. Thank you so much for your time.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much, Ed.